Well, good morning, everybody. Please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2, please. Just on that note, Jamie and I would cover your prayers, as Ryan said. Um, Being assessed, being examined is not the most comfortable thing in the world, but it is is one that we greatly uh, treasure. We we want that process to take place so that we can, because above all else, we want to discern the will of God. Not our own ambitions, our own plans, but uh, because if God is going to build a church, his church, he must build it. Because if we just try, we will just labor in vain. So we do cover your prayers. And yes, it's supposed to rain in California this week. So please pray for us in that aspect as well. (laughs) Suppose now you were dropped, well, maybe right now, in the middle of the South Pacific. And that's a nice thought, isn't it? That's a nice thought on a frigid Sunday morning. But you're dropped onto a deserted island all alone, maybe like Tom Hanks in the classic film Castaway. What would be some of your first actions, do you think, that you would take in order to survive? Likely look for shelter and and food and water and then eventually fire. Conventional survival wisdom would tell you that those four things are top priority. However, and what that fantastic film memorably reminds us, is that a key factor to the human experience and for human survival is not just to have food and water, but to have somebody to share it with, seen in that iconic and beloved character of a blood-stained volleyball, Wilson. The deep desire for community and the need to belong is fundamental to what it means to be human. Remember, at the very beginning, at the creation of Adam, God looked on Adam's isolation and said, not ideal, not good, and thus he creates woman. And in their union, Man and woman are now able to produce more image bearers, image bearers that will become families and cities and nations. We were created to belong to something, something greater than ourselves. And that's fundamental to being human. And it is that reality that is enacted every time we gather as a church body. It's happening right now. Every Sunday morning, we come from all over Sioux Falls and the surrounding area from our various lives, our various situations, our various heartbreaks, our joys, and our sufferings, and we gather in a middle school gym. (laughs) Why? Of all the things that you could be doing right now on a Sunday morning, why come here, especially on a negative 40 wind chill morning? What possesses people to brave the cold to come here? Of course, the answer to those questions is multifaceted. But one of those answers is to satisfy the deep desire to belong to something greater than ourselves. And as we, as those who have been saved by grace through faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God incarnate, we have been swept up into the grand narrative of the gospel. We belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, and critically to his body. As Pastor Ryan reminded us last week, because we belong to the body of Christ, we partake in these these corporate, or what he said, that comes from the Latin corpus, just meaning body, these corporate means of grace. The first and simplest of those is just gathering together, but there are further questions to be answered. Questions like, well, how do I know who makes up this body? How do I know that I am a part of this body? 
Who belongs to this group that is called to gather together regularly? And is there any way to know that objectively? It's in our text this morning that I think we see the answer to some of these questions. So we are dropping into a, a critical juncture in Acts chapter 2. If you remember, if you've in your Bible reading plan, Acts 1 depicts Jesus gathering his disciples before he descends and declares that great promise in Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the very end of the earth. The mission of God, secured in Jesus, it's going to begin anew in Jerusalem and then expand out to the ends of the earth. It's a cosmic plan. But next here in Acts 2, the promised power from on high has come down and it, it falls on the disciples and they do receive that promised Holy Spirit. And Peter, empowered by that Spirit, arises and he gives the first Christian sermon. Peter, like Millions of pastors across the globe this morning preaches the gospel. And he gathers this Jewish crowd from all over the world. He, he doesn't pull any punches in this sermon. He declares that despite their best efforts, the Jesus they crucified, God raised from the dead, conquering death, and now sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, imaging that great Psalm 110, putting all of his enemies under his feet. That's the context for this passage. That's what we're dropping into. So if you're able, would you please stand as I read Acts chapter 2, 37 through 41. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So, those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Let's pray. God, we're looking to you to open our eyes to see and our ears to hear. Would you give grace to understand and cause light to shine on our path as we open and hear your word, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Acts chapter 2, particularly our section today, it depicts the beginning, the birth, really, of the church. And what we see from this passage is that the objective, distinguishing feature of the church is the sacrament of baptism. Often discussed, often debated, Christian baptism is a vital part of the church. Baptism is one of the two sacraments instituted by Christ himself for the benefit and edification of the church, both individually and critically, corporately. David Mathis in his helpful book, Habits of Grace, a book we often refer to during this sermon series, he says this about baptism in the Lord's Supper. Baptism in the Lord's Supper are means of God's grace. Christ instituted channels of God's power, delivered by God's spirit, dependent on Christian faith and the participants, 
given for the corporate context of the gathered church. And as we continue to reflect on these corporate habits of grace at the beginning of this new year, there are lessons to be learned from Acts 2 on the benefit and the witness of baptism. So here's what I believe is a good summary of what we can learn about Christian baptism from this passage and then all from all the New Testament. Christian baptism is the sign and seal of our union with Christ and a declaration to the watching world that we belong to him. Christian baptism is the sign and seal of our union with Christ and a declaration to the watching world that we belong to him. And as we unpack this passage in in greater detail, we're going to see four different aspects of the corporate sacrament of baptism. We're going to look at the, the motivation of baptism, the meaning of baptism, the necessity of baptism, and finally the effect of baptism. So first, the motivation of baptism. The narrative of Peter's sermon is suddenly interrupted by the crowd's response. It's almost as if they just cannot hear anymore and they cry out in one voice, brothers, what shall we do? Upon hearing the gospel presented, they are, as Luke so poignantly describes it, cut to the heart. This is the way the Lord seeks to build his church through faithful, regular, no holds bar gospel declaration that requires a response. It reminds us of that great Emmaus Road, Emmaus Road passage in Luke 24, where Luke, the same author, in his first book, describes those two, those two disciples where they say to each other, did not our hearts burn within us when he opened the scriptures to us and taught us on the road? Our hearts' response. The gospel requires a response, and that response will either be one of two things. It will either be a soft-hearted faith, a burning, a cutting to the heart, or a hard-hearted rejection. But the crowd was listening with ears that could hear and with eyes that could see. And they understood Peter correctly. There was a problem that needed to be addressed, namely their sin. And Peter names their abhorrent sin, the brutal murder of Jesus. And like billions of regular Christians since, they just ask a simple question. Well, who can fix this problem? What are we supposed to do? Peter's response is simple. Repent and be baptized. Throughout the rest of the book of Acts, we, we see several other references to baptism being administered in the early church. And, and starting with this first instance, we learn that baptism is an essential part of people's response to God's gracious offer of salvation. But the order here is informative. Peter calls the people first to repentance and then to baptism into Christ. Albert Moeller commenting on this passage, he, he defines the repentant response to the gospel this way. He says, first, we forsake sin and repent. Sin demands repentance because sin is a violation of God's commandments. Mentally assenting to the wrongness of sin is not enough. That's not repentance. Feeling sad about the consequences of sin is not sufficient. That is just mere regret. We demonstrate true repentance by a genuine hatred of sin with a spirit-empowered desire to never engage in that sin again and a spirit-driven determination to obey Jesus instead. Notice 
how dependent we are on the Spirit in all of this. We are dependent on the Spirit for all of life and for faith. That turning away from sin, it requires a new soft heart. There is no legalism here. There's no salvation transaction here. As Paul will later say, no, we're saved only and solely by grace through faith, not a result of works. Otherwise, we could boast on our own achievements. But that is not the gospel. Before we can obey any of the commands of God, and critically, we must obey the command of God's, we need to be made new, to be made alive, like Lazarus in the tomb. Before he could obey the command of Jesus to come out of the tomb, he first had to be made alive. So too with baptism. If we're going to obey the command to be baptized, we must first obey the command to repent and believe. And we are dependent on God for such an act. And if we repent, God is faithful and just to forgive those sins, even the sins of putting Jesus to death. Notice that verb in Acts chapter 2, be baptized. That's a, a passive verb. While repentance is active, something you actively must do, being baptized is just something that's done to you. It, it requires humility and vulnerability and letting go of control to step into the waters and let somebody dunk you underwater, trusting that they'll pull you back up. Peter commands this tension between what you must do and what must be done to you, a, a good picture of the gospel's promise and response. Repentance and forgiveness. That's the message of Peter's sermon, and it's the essence of Christian salvation. Faith is the hand that lays hold of the beauty of the gospel. And it is faith and belief in Jesus and his saving work that motivates the new Christian to respond to Peter's command and to obey that command by being baptized into the name of Jesus. So the motivation of baptism is rightly and genuinely response to the gospel. But what does baptism actually do? What is it? So number two, the meaning of baptism. Peter commands that the hearers be baptized, but notice how he describes it in verse 38. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Our baptisms are not just perfunctory or arbitrary acts that we do just because we are told that we must. No, baptisms actually do something. Notice, we're not just baptized, but we're baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of sins. The Sovereign Grace Statement of Faith, I think it defines baptism really well when it says, baptism is an initiatory, unrepeated sacrament for those who come to faith in Christ that pictures their remission of sins and union with Christ in his death and resurrection. Through immersion in water, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, the believer publicly proclaims his faith in Christ and signifies his entrance in the body of Christ. Back in October, we witnessed the baptism of four people. Recall the process with me, all right? The, the participant steps into the water. Water throughout the Bible depicting judgment and death and chaos. Think of the flood, Noah's flood, water being a means of judgment. The participant is asked to respond to questions. 
proclaiming their allegiance to Christ and confessing their faith in him. They're dunked under the water, symbolizing their union with Christ in his death and pulled out of that same water, symbolizing even further their union with Christ in his resurrection. Paul describes this process well, exactly in Romans chapter 6. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. So in baptism, we enact that that great miracle that has happened in our hearts at our conversion. The old, sinful, hard-hearted man has died. And in Christ, the new, spiritual man has been born. Just like Jesus said to Nicodemus on that night, we must be born again. And baptism dramatizes that great reality. However, in more recent and modern church history, baptism has been viewed as simply a sign. Simply a declaration. Like announcing an engagement or the birth of a child. It's really nice. Thanks for doing it. Not really that important. Not vital. We can just take your word for it. Thanks. But baptism is much more than simply a sign of some inward reality. Baptism is the sign and seal of that inward work of divine and amazing grace, made evident by the believer's complete break from their past sinful life, the confession of lordship of Christ, and their faithful receiving of new life in him. As the statement of faith said, it's an initiatory act. It's the objective moment that the believer is united to the body of Christ, of real people, a physical body, as it is witnessed by the body of Christ. Christian baptism answers the question, how does the world know you're a Christian? How do we, the church, know you're a Christian? Other than subjective, arbitrary markers, like are you producing enough fruits of the Spirit for us to call you a Christian? Are you changed enough? Is your confession genuine enough, all good, all necessary, but all subjective? Or, as Al Mohler simply says, the New Testament, however, doesn't recognize any unbaptized believer. The mission of God has always been a group project, which means that it will require a visible means to identify the people of God. In the Old Testament, that objective physical marker of the people of God was circumcision, which served as the sign and seal of the covenant between God and Abraham and his offspring and later the nation of Israel. But in Christ, recorded and explained in the New Testament, the covenant between God and his people has expanded to include not just the descendants of Abraham, but those who are united to Christ by faith. The incredible covenantal promises given to Abraham, they no longer travel through bloodline. They travel instead through the precious and sufficient blood of Jesus. That covenant, the covenant belongs to those who are united to him by faith. This is one of the distinguishing points of theology that separate those who practice believers' baptism as we do and as we're talking about now and churches that practice baptism of infants of believing parents. Full disclosure, as I'm sure some of you know, I grew up in such a church that practiced infant baptism. Many of you did too. Uh, I was baptized a little over a week after my birth. 
the Lord graciously and sovereignly placed me in a loving and godly home. And so it was right to baptize the children of believing parents according to that tradition. And I love my family. And I love that church that I grew up in. But as I began to study scripture, one of the passages that changed things for me was Galatians chapter 3. She says, But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Paul's purpose here in Galatians is to establish Christ as the foundation of including the Gentiles into this covenantal community, into the church. For Paul to participate in the blessings, those great blessings given to Abraham, expanded in Moses and David and secured in Christ. That great promise, I will be your God and you will be my people. One must put their faith in Christ. And baptism then serves as the proof of our incorporation into the body of Christ through faith. And if that's what baptism means, a sign and seal of our union with Christ and our incorporation into his covenantal and corporate body, well then, do we need it? Is it required? Number three, the necessity of baptism. Now, as, as good gospel-centered people, you may be tempted to say or to ask, well, hang on, I know that I'm not saved by my works, but I'm saved by grace. So do I really need to be baptized in order to be saved? Well, the gospel promises forgiveness of sins. And all promises do require something. They must be believed. They must be treasured. They must be hung on to. And when the Lord in his sovereignty saved you and made you alive in Christ, all of the promises of Christ became yes and amen to you. It's amazing. That's immediate and it's incredible. Baptism then is the public declaration that you believe those promises and you count them as your own. But look back on Acts chapter 2, verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? But Peter's answer to them is not, Oh, whoa, whoa, you don't have to do anything. There's no need to respond. Just believe in your heart. No, of course not. He, he actually answers their question directly with a proper answer. Repent and be baptized. There are things they must do. And we're not just, we are not just spiritual minds as though all that's required from us is to intellectually agree with the gospel and then feel warm things when we think about the gospel. Yes, we must think right and true things about God and to think those things in such a way that we're affected by them. But we are also physical creatures and we really must obey the commands of God in our actual physical world. Our theology must come out of our fingertips. So think of, a, a, of an engaged couple. Is it really necessary that they go through all the hassle of a wedding? I mean, they're expensive, it's tons of work, often requires travel and all sorts of just stuff. I mean, they already love each other, 
They're already committed to each other. They've promised themselves to one another through an engagement ring. Do they really need such a formal event? Of course, we would insist that there should be a wedding. Why? Because we know something happens at a wedding. Something happens. It's not magic. It's not voodoo. But two people do walk up the aisle single and come down married. There is a status change. Like the ordination of an elder or the installation of a senior pastor like we did last week. These are objective, public rituals, if you will, of something. The same is true of baptism. Of course, there's an important distinction to make that would separate us Protestants from a Roman Catholic tradition. Baptism does not produce or affect the salvation of the baptized. Again, the Sovereign Grace Statement of Faith is helpful here. goes on to say, although commanded by Christ... And a true means of grace, grace is not so inseparably tied to baptism that one can be saved without it, or that everyone who is baptized is thereby saved. In other words, it's not baptism that saves us. Christ, and Christ alone saves us. But now that we have been saved, our Lord Jesus gives us his spirit, which enables us to actually obey his commands, like the command here in Acts to repent and be baptized. 1 John 5, it made this clear. By this we know we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And critically, and his commandments are not burdensome. Obeying God's commands, beginning with being baptized, is not a means to the love of God, but rather the right response to God's love and an expression of our love for him and all that he has done. So is baptism necessary? Yes. And it's a wonderful, it has wonderful, far-reaching effect beyond the person being baptized to the entire body of Christ. So finally, number four, the effect of baptism. David Mathis, again, in his wonderful book, Habits of Grace, he recalls the phrase given to the sacraments during the Protestant Reformation. They called them visible words. Baptism is a declaration. It is a speech that declares and dramatizes the glorious gospel of Jesus. It engages not just our minds, but all of our senses. Like a wedding, baptism is a public event meant to be done in the corporate gathering. Like all the other corporate habits of grace, gathering together, singing, sitting under the preached word, Baptism and the Lord's Supper. This is meant to be shared and witnessed. Although it's individual in nature, its effect is corporate. If, in their baptism, the new believer declares their union with Christ, the gathered body together then receives them into the body. We we participate in that baptism. And also, like a wedding, every time you go to a wedding, maybe you're Maybe you're not like me, but when I go to a wedding, I'm reminded of my own wedding, reminded of the vows I made and the love I have for my wife. And the same is true of every baptism we witness. Next time we witness a baptism, remember your own baptism, the vows you made, the young, newborn faith you had, and the resolve, again, by God's grace to keep those vows and to marvel at the work God has done in your life since that point to marvel at the progress of faith. 
the objective nature of baptism can also serve as a tremendous means of assurance. Again, the marriage analogy is helpful. If I'm short with my kids or impatient with my wife, I don't lose my husband status. I don't all of a sudden become unmarried. I don't need to recommit myself to my wife. No, of course not. I need to ask for forgiveness. I need to repent and ask for forgiveness. My failures and my sin do not negate or void my marriage status. The same is true for our salvation. Our baptisms serve as an objective means to know that I belong to the people of God, regardless of how I feel. And even if I sin, when I sin, I need not question my own salvation. Rather, I repent and believe and am restored to the fellowship and the family of God. Whenever you feel your faith might fail, remind yourself that it's Christ that holds me fast. And your baptism signaled that holding. Another effect of baptism is that it helps distinguish who I am to extend all the one another commands to. Yes, of course, we're to, to love our neighbor as ourselves. But there are unique commands given to obey between believers. Consider Galatians 6, 9, and 10. Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are in the household of faith. How do we know who belongs in the household of faith? Who belongs to the visible church? How do I know who belongs to my family? Those who bear my name. How do we know who belongs to the family of God? Those who bear the name of Christ. The New Testament answers those questions is that those who have been united to Christ by faith and have been joined physically to his church through physical baptism, those are the people that God uniquely calls me to be in unity with, to bear their burdens, to serve, to comfort, to encourage. So baptism, although often a means of division and debate, is meant to function for our unity. It's meant to remind us of every time we witness it that we belong to a people. We belong to something greater than ourselves, a body of believers. And the thing that unites us is what Peter promises in Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Peter said to them, Repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That Holy Spirit is the thing that unites the people of God. He is the one that binds us together. It's the divine glue that holds us together, keeps us together, produces the fruits of that Spirit among us, and empowers us to keep going. What a promise. What is the ultimate effect of the habits of grace? God himself dwelling among us. Remember the effect the gospel Remember what the effect of the gospel preaching was in Acts 2. And those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. That's the birth of the church. And this is not the formation of some bureaucratic institution, but a system made of people, a body made of souls, real people like you and like me with, with real stories who were really cut to the heart the depths of their sin and the majestic work of Christ on their behalf, and they responded, and they were numbered. They were not just hearers of the word, but doers also. 
Notice the number. It's knowable. It's a lot, but it's knowable. 3,000. Those who were baptized now belong to something greater than themselves. They belong now to Christ. No longer do they identify first and foremost with their family or their race or their sex or their occupation or their wealth, but their identity belongs to the one they crucified and who God raised to life. It's not something that they were willing to just nod along with and agree with, but they were willing to enact that great drama in their baptism. Of all the incredible sweet effects of baptism, don't forget that baptism is a means of grace. We get grace. Not the salvific, regenerative grace we receive at our conversion, but grace. Amazing, sweet grace nonetheless. And don't you want grace? Don't you want more of the Spirit manifest among us? Then just like all the other habits of grace, prayer, meditation, fellowship, Bible reading, gathering together on Sundays, in baptism we receive more than we could possibly deserve. So my friends, if you belong to Christ, if you're united to him by faith, if he's made you alive and you haven't been baptized, I would would encourage you to heed the command of Peter. Repent and be baptized. Commit yourself publicly to the body of Christ. Don't withhold that blessing from yourself or from us, the gathered church. And if you have questions about baptism, about any of it, do speak to us, to to one of your pastors. There's nothing that we would love more than to discuss this with you and to answer questions you might have regarding it. So please do reach out. And the next time we have baptism, which we're hoping to do, Lord willing, on Easter Sunday in March, take note of what is happening. Rejoice in the gospel work that's being done and being witnessed. Marvel at the grace of God to us, that he would give us such marvelous means of grace for us to see, to hear, to experience the gospel of Jesus. So commit to his people as Christ has committed himself to you. Belong to his people as Christ has transferred you from the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light, where, he, where we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. Let's pray. God, what hope do we have in this world apart from you? What hope do we have other than what you have done on our behalf? What amazing grace, what incredible promises have been secured for us in the death and resurrection of Jesus. We don't deserve it, far from it. And yet, God, you have seen fit to get for yourself a people. What a joy it is to be numbered with those people. So, God, would you stir us? Would your spirit work among us that we might lean on the grace of God in order to do the works that you've called us to? Thank you for making us alive so that we can walk in the ways of Jesus. So God, would you give us grace now, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.